0: Welcome to the Love Out Loud podcast, where we have conversations that actualize a civilization of love by 2030. A place to learn how to make love actionable and solidify the ambiguity of what love-based leadership looks like in the new world. And if you're new to the Love Out Loud family, welcome and we love you. You're now a part of a growing global community dedicated to living life differently. So jump in our telegram group to meet your new tribe. What I will do to, serve, whilst we're waiting for Kathy um, to introduce the amazing Matt and Kathy to the Love Out Loud podcast, we are so excited to de-woo and demystify everything that healers, coaches, trainers, um, spiritualists over the millennia have known is very real and actually debunk the uh, the synchronicities and the magic into the real science so that we can more deeply understand the complexity, the intelligence of the human system. And I couldn't think of two better people than you both. Uh, I'm just going to take a second to, to read out your bios to our listeners so that they can really connect to uh, how incredible you both are. So we have uh, Matt Bush here, who's the owner of Next Level Neuro, a neuroscience-based health and performance coaching company that works with health and fitness professionals to teach how to train the nervous system to create its highest levels of performance. He's known for making the difficult details of neurology and neuroscience practical and applicable for coaches in the real world. He has over 10,000 hours, and I hear, Matt, 10,000 hours is, in fact, the, 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 the genius level of mastery. So that's highly impressive. Um, of course, instruction and hands on training for personal trainers, therapists, athletic coaches, and other health and fitness professionals. Wow, well, Matt, Water Bio, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Kathy, your business partner, also a remarkable human being, 25 years of experience in biology, medical research, and neurological study. Before working with Next Level Neuro, she was a partner and creator of neuroscience-based education company Z Health Performance. After selling that business, now focusing on uh now focusing her attention on two areas, neurotraining with next level neuro and business growth coaching through her consulting firm, KJM Consulting. Just in time. Welcome back, Kathy. <laughs> and she appears. Um, I am really excited. Uh, I'm co-hosting this episode with Edika James, our amazing creative director. Edika, if you want to say hey to the the Lol Tribe tuning in. <laughs> hey Lol Tribe. It's awesome to meet you guys. Oh, we can't we can't we can't hear you, Edika. Oh, you can? Uh, there we go. Welcome. Hello, hello again. I can What's up? What's up? Yeah. So this is a four-way podcast, which is pretty cool. And um the intent is to de which is uh, uh sort of uh, word, which I really love, and break this down into the science. So really, where to begin, Kathy and Matt? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was thinking about this episode, I thought of uh, something that I heard very early on in my own entrepreneurial journey from a speaker that I was watching, um, and he said that, in order to make something real in the world, you really need to know how to make it real inside yourself first, which was such a defining reframe uh, for me at the time. This is going back 10 years ago now. Uh, And since then, I feel like I've been on this sometimes conscious, sometimes subconscious journey of really understanding what that means. And I thought that would be an incredible place to begin Based on uh, your experience, what does that mean for you both? Making something real inside yourself first. First session.
1: Yeah, I'll dive in. So thank you for having us. We're, we're super honored and excited to be here. Um, and I think this is going to be an incredible conversation. <laughs> um, to, to make it real for yourself first, I think it's about like mastery, right? And And mastery to me is not a destination. It's a journey. It's a path that we're following and learning, expanding, growing, but also applying. I mean, we, we all know there's a difference between intellectual knowledge and application. And sometimes that's easy. We bridge the connection really simply and really effortlessly. And sometimes it's a huge struggle. But um, the, the work of mastery, I think, is about putting in the time, the repetitions, the energy, the effort to make applicable what we're learning about the human nervous system in this case, about how our brains and bodies and nervous system really work. And to bring this to the world, like if it's not deeply rooted inside and you're on that path, it's not going to stand on, it's not going to stand up. Right. Um, it's going to have its legs cut out from under it or the holes are going to show. Um, we all are going to have struggles as a business owner, you know, as an entrepreneur. There's going to be chinks in the armor. <laughs> There's going to be moments of vulnerability. But exactly what, in my opinion, I think is all about that walk of authenticity. That you're practicing, learning, growing, whatever it is that you want to work through, uh, and then share to the world. So for us, that's been neuroscience for the last, you know, 30 years combined between the two of us, where it's, it's learning, reading the research and the science and taking what the Western world is learning about the nervous system, combining it with experience and wisdom and then our own personal journey and going, how does this actually fit physiologically, neurologically, emotionally? And how can we kind of blend those things to make it real rather than just some ethereal concept?
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: Okay, your turn. So, um, that begs so a million mean, other questions. <laughs> let's, Kathy, let's go. <laughs>
2: <gonna> say, yeah, <laughs> <lots of authenticity. laughs> we think so similarly, but so different. Um, to make something real for others, I have to make it real for myself. But that means I believe in humans are actually selfish by nature as a means of survival and not, not on purpose in a bad way. But as a means of survival, we think of ourselves far more often than we think of others. Um, And otherwise, how would we survive? And that's not to say people are selfish, but it is how. And so when it comes to health and healing and life optimization, I'm regularly looking for because either you're born with certain things that hold you back or life throws at you certain things that hold you back and figuring out how to overcome those things is what gives us the ability to communicate and connect and share with others how to help them get further in their journey and so I mean I was born into the world with several you know actual biomechanical issues and and so. Knowing internally that I was more than I was able to demonstrate drove me because I should be able to catch that. I should be able to jump that far. I should be able to run that speed. Why can't I? And having doctors go, well, that eye doesn't work. And you know, you have this vestibular issue. And yes, you have really bad scoliosis, and your gut's just kind of a mess. (laughs) And and kind of being told you need to live with that, it sets you on a journey. To go, no, I don't. Why should I have to? But finding those truths for self is then what allows you those connection points to reach other people. And Mm. to not want them to struggle in the same journey. Because you kind of go, oh, I've been there. This might work for you too. Try it. Right? To want to give that away. Mm. You know, I guess that's what it is to me. Real for self.
0: Than mm-hmm. I feel that that's thank you for sharing that Kathy a bit about your sort of personal journey and experience and you know I, I relate to it so much in my own way as I shared in our first conversation, my journey in that was uh, uh, years of battling an eating disorder, and then finding myself in a health system that every touch point every interaction that I had with that system. I, I felt, you know, in my limited understanding of this stuff as a teenager, but this really deep kind of inner knowing that in the context of that health system, I was only ever being met with the projection of illness. Every time I had this interaction, they were speaking to the part of me that was, you know, quote-unquote damaged, this part of me that was, was sick. They weren't speaking to the part of me that was well. You know, they weren't holding that On me, and I was finding it so difficult to become someone new, even though that was meant to be the space that I was recovering. And I had this knowing that it wasn't until I got away from that system and started to relate to myself in a new way that I was really going to heal. And I think that would be an incredible kind of place to start debunking some of this because how many people can relate to that maybe it's a job that they're stuck in and they just want to be someone new but every time they go to work they're being met as that version of self that they're trying to break up with how do we understand the components of that the mechanics of that the the science of that to better and more masterfully separate from an identity that maybe we don't want to have anymore break up with it and become someone new
2: It reminds me of, uh, there's a book, one of my favorite books in this regard is called Changing for Good. Uh, Norcross, DiClemente, and Prochaska are the authors. And I like the book so much because they actually worked with already successful self-changers when they did the Mm -hmm. research. So they no longer were studying the ailments that people wanted to overcome. They were studying the things that people had already overcome. So they studied the success to decide what does it take to become successful, which is a completely different frame of mind or frame of reference than you're sick. You know, as long as you're sick, we need to help you get over being sick. So while we're talking about you being sick, here's how.
1: Or studying what's holding people back. Earlier research had always studied why are people failing to make change? Why can't people step into these new identities? Yeah. And you can, if you survey a thousand people, you're going to find a thousand reasons why they can't make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> but what these authors did is they studied those who were successful and went, you know, what's the common thread? How do they make the change? Mm. So very, and? yeah, very cool book.
0: And what was the, like, give, give us the, give, <laughs> so, what, what did they find? <laughs> yeah. So
1: interesting. Uh, they studied 30,000 people for this book, for the research behind it. Uh, They came up with multiple thousands of different strategies. And so after crunching the data and interviewing, they came up with what they called the trans theoretical model of change, which is represented by five steps of progression toward intentional behavior change or identity change. So they, they go, everybody had these common threats. They went through these stages and you progress from one stage to the next. And then sometimes you fall down the stairs And recycle or repeat the process Mm -hmm. um but i think that being said even with a quick overview the most interesting part is that most people go through six to 12 cycles before they successfully make it to the top of the stairway
2: which is really cool to know because it completely when you're conversing with someone about what they want to change and they're like, Oh, I'll never be any good. I, I've tried over and over and over again. You get to go, how many times have you tried? Oh, great. Yeah. You're halfway there. Like yeah. this next rep could do it. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a completely different perspective of aiming towards success, yeah. knowing that the brain is capable rather mm-hmm. than I'm a failure. I'll always be a failure because I failed this many times already. Oh, you're this mm-hmm. close to success now. Cause you already know all those things that don't work. Let's not do them again. Yeah, completely different. When you say cycles
3: change, does that refer to um, making making an effort and having it yeah. not go well, but learning something that leads to the next effort?
1: Exactly. It's like the idea of fail, fail fast, right? Fail early. <laughs> These are six to twelve dedicated, intentional attempts at changing, and they fail six to twelve times, and that's for really for each intentional behavior change, mm-hmm. not for a full identity shift. It's like, I want to change my diet and nutrition. or I want to change my exercise or I want to change how I communicate with my significant other. Mm-hmm. They're going to fall back down the stairs and restart the process six to 12 times before it really sticks. Mm-hmm. So when we talk with a client and they're like, oh, I've done this, and you know, how many times like Kathy's saying, "Oh, I've got like, Six times, seven times, I've already tried. Go, great, you've learned seven things that don't work. (laughs) You're you're that much closer to number eight, and it's going to stick this time.
2: But now, you didn't ask about this, but then here's the next piece of that. The more often we we try something and fail, and then we successfully change, neuroplasticity, our brain's ability to change, and our physical body's ability to change, upregulates. So- each successful thing change creates an yep. ability to actually change again. So if I want to change one thing and it looks like this, it's blue, it happens six days a week, you know, whatever. If I want to change that to be red eight times a week and there's this other thing that's similar, it's yellow and it's five. If there are like characteristics between things that we decide to change, you know, my communication strategy may be between a spouse and a kid whatever if they're similar then change can happen faster when applied again because I Mm -hmm. now know that I can and that Mm -hmm. applies to releasing trauma that applies to getting out of pain that applies to learned behaviors it applies to releasing behaviors. so Mm -hmm. it applies across the board that neuroplasticity becomes what's called metaplasticity which is the change of being able to change
0: so this is uh a this is so amazing to hear like your, both of your take on this because one of the things that Love Out Loud um, is really sort of foundational to our process, our methodology, is this uh, process of tra- transformation. And um, one of the things that my work continued to show me was how um, really our our uh, relationship would change throughout adult years, how our formative experiences of change Um, our experiences as a child, our coming of age, you know, these really foundational transitional points in our life have impacted our relationship to change. And unless we bring awareness and consciousness, and I guess in in, in this case of six to 12 times of intentionality to that process of change and metamorphosis, we're going to fall back into these same coping cycles of how we dealt with change in the past or what was modelled to us and in our experiences, what we what we bring people into is this new relationship with that metamorphosis, that process of metamorphosis, which we define in three stages. And I'd be so curious to hear your perspectives on this: the separation from comfort zone, so breaking up, you know, with what was familiar, then this process of inquiry, where basically, like the the caterpillar has gone into the chrysalis, the inquiry is the chrysalis, where you're not who you were but you're not yet who you're becoming. So there's this space of infinite possibility, liminality, um, which, you know, in our culture scape, everyone seems really shit scared of. They're like, I don't want to be in liminality. I don't want to be no one. I need, to, I need to be someone. I need to like have my identity sorted and I've got to like fight for that identity. Even if it's a really like terrible identity that's causing me pain every day, it's better to have that than no identity, you know? So that liminal space is so vulnerable for people. And then the third component, which I think because of the fear associated with that middle space, not a lot of people even sort of get to, which is that reintegration and acknowledgement of of new self. And if you can facilitate that process with the right, um, you know, buffering and, and safety, but also room and space, it really is quite amazing what people can transform into in such a short period of time. So based on that process, I'd love to hear you just, like, sort of debunk that. What what have you noticed? What have you seen? Are we on the right track with our process of transformation?
1: (laughs) Well, I have thoughts, but.
2: Um, So I would absolutely tell you, of course, you're absolutely on the right track. And what you just shared is there are so many that share similar things when they're talking about change. You know, everybody identifies it by a certain set of words or behaviors or or looks at it from their perspective. I absolutely think you're in the right. I think that's accurate. Um, our whole world has sayings and phrases and cliche ideas of the devil, things like the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't. If I can live in this comfort zone as ugly as it is from a neurologic perspective, it's predictable, predictable for my brain. So it's a little bit safer than going through figuring out what I'm going to look like on the other side. And this applies to every situation in life from situations of abuse Mm -hmm. all the way from a situation of like professional athletics, people at the highest stages of their game, from an abusive situation, the devil I know is predictable, not safe, but at least I yeah. know what familiar. familiar. It, yes. Yeah. to go through what I'd have to go through to get out of here and what chance I have on the other side, I can't see and I can't predict. Mm. So that's the pain of, yeah. am I willing to step into that space? but you'll see professional athletes that have compensated body positions, but because they've reached the top of their game in those compensated bodies that are now breaking down, Mm. I can't slow down to go back and relearn how to pitch at this speed or perform some kind of physical, you know, game at this speed. I can't slow down and learn again Mm. so that I can become so much better and even extend my career seven, 10 years. No, I'll just sail on one track to perform. Yeah. Yeah. So what I know is safer. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ride this wave as long as I can
0: Mm. because
2: they won't keep me in, in professional athletics. If I relearn now. Mm. And so so it's, it's the ability. Am I willing to step into the unknown? Uncomfortable. (laughs) <laughs> and here's what's crazy is is we understand neurologically our brain does not want us to. Yeah. Because neurologically it takes way the heck more energy.
0: Yeah.
2: If I have to pull this from the back bottom part of my brain where it lives and I know how to do it and I have to think about it now, the amount of energy into the system that I will need to do this, mm. it takes all of me. Yeah. And so yeah. the brain's like, "No, I don't go there." Yeah. No. No. Not going to help you go there. It makes sense
3: of why we stay in relationships that aren't working, why we continue doing movement patterns that we know bring pain and just kind of numb out that pain. It's literally terrifying for the conscious mind to go into the unknown, but I've never thought about it in terms of the physiological task that it takes, the energetic task to go into the unknown.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Think about the last time that you moved in with a significant other and you're learning to live with another person in the same enclosed space. Like it's not just who's going to do the laundry, right? There is a (laughs) massive amount of energy to figure out the day-to-day actions, the nonverbal communication, the verbal communication, the schedules, like all of that stuff is like what we're talking about to step into a new, that's just a silly example, but to step into a new identity and a new lifestyle, it's not just one thing that's changing. It's everything that changes because it's all yeah. connected, right?
0: I really feel that there's these, like, uh, cultural influences on this too, which kind of make it doubly difficult to the neurological component, which is in our culture scape, it is so hard to be a beginner once you've been an expert, you know, and and, and, and the yeah. resistance in yeah. being seen as well as having to start again and the 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 pain you know maybe to the to the identity that wants to continually be seen as you know the best i i see this in in people i've worked with who maybe are exceptional speakers but they've called themselves a speaker for the past 3 decades and inside of them is a visual artist is a musician is a you know there's all these other talents but their willingness to be a beginner at those things um, is, is sort of not really there. And so their, their ability to actualize their potential will always be limited because of the attachment to that one, that one identity.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's the golden handcuffs because mm-hmm. they have to fulfill that role to f- provide financially. Sometimes it's cultural pressure and expectation. Mm-hmm. But the people that we've seen succeed most in that transition are the ones who go into the chrysalis and disappear for a while. Like yeah. They leave the public eye and you're like, whatever happened to that guy or yeah. whatever to her? <laughs> yeah. And then they reemerge yeah. and you're like, whoa, yeah. all right, I'm good. That's cool. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's really is a transformation because they were gone for a while, mm-hmm. but that's really what you're talking about of giving up the initial identity mm-hmm. and distancing yourself from cultural expectations or the need to fit in. Sometimes yeah. like, you have to be willing to separate from those to go find that new sense of self.
3: So beautifully stated. And I'm thinking right now of someone in my life who's going into that chrysalis now, and I've, I'm just coming out of a chrysalis myself. And, and, you know, I invite anybody who's listening to this to think about, is there anybody in your world, in your life who you might realize is actually going into a chrysalis right now? And how can you support them and hold space for them and see that that's the process that's happening? Because it is hard and it's scary. And a lot of times it's a letting, letting go of an identity means letting go of a community, a label,
1: a superpower. Um, yes. I, that's. Mm. I was going to mention that when you asked about the stages and debunking them. First of all, there's nothing here to debunk. It's great. <laughs> but what Ada could just right. said. Right? What she what just said to, the, to, to your listeners is your ability to succeed through these stages or for someone else to succeed is going to depend on the support that's available, the space that they have to actually engage in that new identity and new behaviors. Like, you know, it, and I don't think this is exactly what you're doing. In fact, I know it's not. But if you were doing like, we're going to do a week long retreat and we're going to take you through this process. It's like whether people are successful or not, in large part, is going to depend on environment, emotional support, time and space for them to realign their personal identity, thoughts, and beliefs. Like it's all going to come from those things and the actions that they actually participate in. If I get into the chrysalis, though, and my support disappears, and I get crunched on time, and then I'm expected to show up and provide. Or to perform, and I haven't made the full transition. Probably what I'm gonna do is pull the ripcord and I'm gonna bail on the new version of me. And I'm gonna go back to here's how I have to survive. Yeah. Right? Because our brains are, are, we say this all the time our brains are wired for survival, not performance.
0: Yeah. And
1: so if it doesn't predict success, doesn't think that they can win in this situation, I'm gonna bail. And I'm gonna go back to what appears to be safe and familiar.
0: Totally. It's so you know, we can all practice more mindfulness in this. I I notice it when someone's trying to make this really substantial change. How common is it to hear things like, oh, you don't drink anymore? We miss the old you, bro. Like, sis, what like what what happened to what happened to the old you that used to be fun and cool? And you know, people are attached to that old version of self. So when we step into this new and we don't receive that acknowledgement, you know, from from the people around us, our our whole social security becomes threatened, you know. And when you've had these, like, peak experiences or these transformational experiences and you go back, you know, the hero's journey, they went, you know, out into the world and then they return, Um, when that return's happening, if there's not this adequate kind of acknowledgement which tribally would always occur. You know, a tribe, when there was a, an initiation, the whole tribe would acknowledge at the end of that initiation the the tribe member for the transformation that occurred so they could kind of embody that. But right. we don't really have this awareness, I, I don't think, culturally and socially, and so that it can create this real discord where you, you're never going to be the same person you were, but everyone's relating to you as if you know the change hasn't hasn't happened and you get stuck in this kind of discord and so what i'd love to sort of like break down for people is what are the components of the human system we were speaking before we started recording the episode you know there's the conscious mind the subconscious mind and the nervous system which when all three of those things are beautifully in alignment and there's no conflict between these parts of ourselves then we can step fully into the actualization of that which we're becoming. But why has it become so difficult for us to sort of bring cohesion to these parts of our system? What, what's with that? How do we become better at that?
1: So my take on this is kind of the neuroscience nerd. All right. So,
0: oh, great. Perfect. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, the way that I talk through this with our, our students and our clients is that if your brain's number one job is to survive, like to keep you alive, Um, and it does that through a predictive mechanism, right? Every moment of the day, it's looking into the next moment, trying to determine, am I going to be safe or unsafe? Mm -hmm. As long as things are perceived as safe, I'm going to be moving forward down my chosen path. Like, yeah, sure. Do whatever you want to do. Like move that weight, play that sport, have that conversation, jump out of that airplane. (laughs) If it's perceived as safe. But if my brain perceives that in the next moment, or actually predicts in the next moment, I'm going to be unsafe, it's going to shut down my desired action. And it's going to go back to some type of protective mechanism. And this is all at the level of a subconscious mind. So this is back bottom part of the brain, like brainstem, amygdala, and thalamus for actual brain areas that are running the show. Okay. So our conscious mind up here comes up with this great idea, like, ah, oh, I'm going to change my identity, or I'm going to start doing this, or I'm going to, you know, whatever, take up underwater basket weaving. <laughs> and my brain's like, that's a dumb idea. You can't breathe underwater. And it just shuts me down before I even get out of the gate. So it's kind of like this tug of war between our desires and beliefs on one hand and survival on the other. That's where the initial like break comes from. The, or the, the incongruity between the two. Hmm. And so like, we can want new things. Like I want a better relationship. I want to communicate more appropriately. I want to have a different looking body I, you know, whatever it is, I want to go back to school. But if our survival brain and our subconscious doesn't feel that that's a safe avenue for us to take, it's the engine's never going to start. Like we're not even going to begin the first steps. Yeah. And so kind of what happens is it's when we actually get our intended behavior change in alignment with a way that actually feels safe. And, and I'll even say it feels possible
0: mm-hmm.
1: that that's when we can engage and kind of like this more effortless way mm-hmm. where our brain goes, okay, yeah, let's proceed. Right. Because now we're back in the safe side of things rather than the unsafe got to protect myself. So we often talk about, rather than starting with a huge identity shift, what are the baby steps that lead there, right? How do we begin the process and engage, like Kathy talked about, that ability for us to engage in change behavior, the ability to examine our own beliefs and our thoughts and our emotions. Those are the baby steps that have to be trained and kind of leveled up in skill before we can just go boom, everything's different. Because right? <laughs> if that incongruity is too big, then we're just not going to engage.
0: Mm. There is a way though, Matt, right, to um, to ease, like as you become more masterful, ease the nervous system into these really like incredible possibilities in a very short period of time. And I think it's important for people to sort of be inspired by that possibility that we do have this unlimited capacity yeah. of imagination yeah, yeah, yeah. so
1: really the, nice. the situation i'm describing a moment ago is all pre-training
0: like yeah
1: <laughs> before yeah. we open up the curtain
0: preliminary work yeah
1: <laughs> yeah really like that's how if if we're left to our own devices and we don't know or haven't been trained or learned these things then yeah that's how we're going to do it right mm. and that's the people who unfortunately fall back to safety and cultural expectation that we were talking about a few minutes ago so yeah, it's absolutely possible to change the landscape and or change the the internal dialogue and how that happens. Um, I want you to go first <laughs> and tell me about that because I have my own theory, but I want to see how we kind of
0: mesh all this. Yeah, I I'm mean, taking I mean, the interviewer I mean, hat and I'm
1: asking the questions now.
0: I so, love, I love what is that. Happening here? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I I think like you guys are neuroscientists. I I probably like consider myself a mystic or a philosopher. So I I come at similar like I think perspectives, just kind of conceptualized in a different way. And I I see like the the, the pulse of life is always like dying and rebirthing itself. Every single breath. Every single moment you know and so within that is exponential possibility <laughs> like you know yeah. as, when, when, when i'm when i move my hand actually my hand has like disintegrated and reappeared a trillion times um on an atomic level you know as it moves yeah. through a space so you know we do have these these abilities so that w- w- our perception you know on a neurological level this uh concept of safety hasn't matured to a place where it would be safe maybe for me to experience myself as disappearing and reappearing every single second so that the actual perceived experience, you know, isn't isn't there yet. But I have a total sort of inner belief that all of that exponential potential is, is possible as a human being. And I think for me it's it's all about finding synergy and flow moment to moment to the best of my ability to regulate my nervous system and have it be so still that that possibility starts to open up and and the periphery of my vision and my potential in all moments starts to become available to me that's kind of how I see it that like if I have uh if I inhale and I keep inhaling and I never exhale it's going to cause this like dis-ease it's going to block me if I exhale and exhale and exhale and I never inhale, same thing. But if I really become conscious of the fact that every time I breathe in, there's new life. Every time I breathe out, you know, I can let go. And that's that's an infinite um, invitation. If I can really become present to that, and it reminds me, Kathy, of something we spoke about in our last conversation, sort of moving this flow state to an even more exponential state of total surrender to You know, in my language, it would be divinity, but maybe it's just total surrender to to life itself so that we are no longer inside the confines of the limited self at all. You know, can we get to a place as humanity where we really are consciously living that experience every single moment?
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that what you just described in metaphorical language is a muscle that we can train. The awareness of that well there's the learning that kind of underpins it a little bit like you're talking about you know quantum physics of moving the hand through space and appearing and reappearing like we're more empty space than we are subatomic particles right
0: possibility yeah right
1: yeah so yeah. like if if my client joe doesn't understand what the hell we're talking about he's like you guys are woo <laughs> woo, right?" So there's a little bit of underpinning of knowledge that's required, but then to be able to go into that space to experience our breath or to experience our body and actually almost sit in observation of our own nervous system. That's a muscle that we can train. And and that's the metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so for us, like if we spin it a little bit into more neuro language, we're going to talk about upregulating and downregulating the sympathetic nervous system. And tapping into things like your vagus nerve and your brainstem in order to kind of match the intention of where we're going with our beliefs and our identity, mm. right? So I'm on the same page, hundred yeah. um, percent. And I like how we have similar language that kind of leads into the same place. Mm.
3: If you were to give things like the brainstem and the vagus nerves. Um, Disney-like job titles. What is the <laughs> doing? What is the <laughs> okay.
2: guiding oh, a fire
3: into this world to master this understanding from the start? And these yeah. are little- who's, the
0: ce- who's the CEO? Who's, what's, what's really what's really? <laughs> yeah, good, question, right? good question.
1: So actually, let me start with a couple of different brain areas other than those to kind of build you the big picture. Okay. So a minute ago, when we were talking about survival, the amygdala is our kind of survival radar. It's looking for threats. So, you know, it's always on the watch. It's always alert. Even when we're in a fairly calm state, it's still paying attention to the external environment and internal environment to see if there's any danger. Because if there is, even if I'm in the most serene meditation ever, if there's a physical danger in the environment, I'm going to respond almost instinctively, Right. So the amygdala plays that role of the threat detection center, watchtower. Yep, the watchtower, right? Um, and it's located in the midbrain, kind of just at the top of the brainstem. So it's still fairly deep back here. It is not. It's not cognitive. It's not rational. So it's not part of our cortical brain area. Um, the in between the the survival brain and the cortex is the thalamus, which is kind of like the gatekeeper. Or the bouncer standing outside the club, (laughs) going, "Okay, you like you sensory input. You can come into the cortex, but you you have to stay outside." And it's deciding of all the stuff that goes on in our environments, what are we actually going to become consciously aware of? Um, And actually, this is something that we've talked about with Adica before in some earlier conversations. Um, And I love these numbers. In any one second, there's approximately four hundred billion. Pieces of information flying around, wow. like sensory incredible. information. Yeah, that,
0: that we incredible. could gather
1: from visual inputs, auditory, um, our inner ear, like sense of balance, tactile sensation, temperature, right, and all of our internal sensations as well. Four hundred billion. Our subconscious brain runs through about two thousand processes per second. Amazing so when you do the math there and you take four hundred billion and divide two thousand into that, you get like you're actually grasping about one out of every two hundred million possibilities mm. of like six data.
0: yeah
1: right so it's just like it, you have to ask yeah, the just, question, just
0: just 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 in case just in case you were you were wondering, you know, uh, how how to really sort of get into the understanding that you are a walking, talking miracle. Just let that <laughs> let that really sink yes. in. literally. <laughs> okay, <Yeah. laughs> there's that much sensory input that we're
3: not even picking up. That's around. yeah. Up.
1: We're not even grabbing it, right? So imagine if you can increase your sensory awareness to a, a higher level or a higher state of energy, right? Like, what are you going to pick up that you were missing before? Yeah. So that's you such, have a, ask... such a
0: beautiful way of understanding. I just want to sort of flag that because I think that, that can that's so relatable and relevant to the journey of expanding consciousness, right? So exactly. as you move into a more expansive state, all of a sudden, you know, the the pathway to do what previously seemed to be impossible, I, I am it sort opens of, up. Yeah, I, I imagine it like my I'm in a higher state of consciousness. My periphery opens up, you know, rather than yeah. like. Just being able to see here, I see all of these more subtle kind of opportunities that can get me to that place where previously I didn't know how to get to.
1: Yeah. And it literally works that way, which is so cool. Okay. So it begs the question,
0: how does my brain choose
1: the 2,000 things that it's going to pay attention to, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. In our work, what we found, and in the research, I kind of think it supports this. Number one is what's going to keep me alive. My survival is of utmost importance. And number two is that it's set by my expectations. Mm. So we say my expectations create my reality or your expectations create your reality. Right. And super silly example. But if you get invited to a party on Friday night and you really don't like parties, you're be like, oh, this is going to suck. Right? There's going to be people I have to talk to. There's going to be dancing, be food <laughs> I don't really like. And then you show up at the party and what's going to happen? that you're going to live right into that expectation. Right. But here's the thing on Monday, when someone asks you, Hey, how was the party? And when your brain gets to say, Oh, it wasn't fun. If there was dancing and people and this crazy food, the significance of that is that your brain has just been proven right. Right. Because our brains seek out evidence to match our expectations so that we can confirm our sense of reality. Yeah. On the other hand, if you love parties, you're like, woo, party, people, dancing, food, it's gonna be awesome. You're gonna live into that on Friday and take those actions. On Monday, someone asks you how the party goes, you're like, oh, it was amazing, it was great. And your brain is right. So either way, our brain wins and it reinforces our reality. Let's let's just-
2: You said expectation and what was the
0: other
1: one? Mm. survival and
0: expectation. Yeah. Mm. That's important not to forget. It's both. So I creates- think that the beautiful nuance in this, sorry, Edgar, you couldn't hear. I was, I was just saying in a lot of ways, it's, it's
3: this is how beliefs can create these mm. echo chambers that we continue to experience is very real. They are real mm. because this is what we're seeing and reinforcing over and over again. And that, that becomes comfortable. That becomes the known kind of looping back to what we were talking about earlier. It's very scary to step outside of that. Mm-hmm. Even if on this very simple sensory level, there was so many different data inputs that we could have had at that party.
0: Yeah, right. One thing that I love about the nuance of how you're explaining this matter is it really empowers people to hopefully, you know, more intimately understand that it's not happening to you. You know, like life isn't happening to you. You are happening to life, and and by having the expectation of the party being amazing you inadvertently then create it. You've made it real inside yourself. And so then the the safety, to use your former explanation, of being able to show up and behave in a way that will create that experience. It's not that that experience was destined to be great. It's more that you expected it to be great and therefore the way you behaved, your energy, the way you showed up, created that great experience. If everyone yes. could just grasp that one understanding to empower themselves to really understand how they're creating their reality, what, what a powerful, you know, shifts that could happen thereafter when, when people really start to understand that.
1: Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, the, the significant part as well, the next significant piece comes next. (laughs) Because out (laughs) out of 2000 subconscious processes per second, when we go up to your cognitive brain, your cognitive brain is capable of about 40 like conscious awarenesses per second. So a conscious awareness is like, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I have to pee, he's still talking, like what time is it, right? So if we were firing on all cylinders, we could do about forty of those in one second.
0: Wow. But
1: we've still had to narrow down the inputs, right? We've gone from two thousand to only forty, mm. and this is where some of the disconnect actually happens. Because um, first of all, it's like, well, how does our brain choose to go from two thousand to forty? What's the filter? Like, what's the question that it's asking? And it's it's truly the same: survival and expectation. Mm-hmm. But where there sometimes is a disconnect is that the, the area of cognitive belief, right? So your frontal lobe as a human, there's two particular areas that are thought to be most aligned with cognitive belief and self-identity. They're your ventromedial prefrontal cortex, or, and that's the VMPFC in the literature, where that's your kind of your sense of yourself in a relationship to others in relation to your environment, so your cognitive perception that we're having a conversation, I'm reading your body language, we're friends, right? But if body language shifted and changed, and I became like more standoffish, hiding behind Kathy, like you'd be like, what's up with this guy? Like something's weird, right? Mm-hmm. So that medial prefrontal cortex is belief and identity in relation to environment and other individuals, And then the area called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is kind of like on the border between limbic system and frontal lobe. That's our sense of internalized identity, my self-belief and self-identity or or self-perception even. And it's a a little more on the cognitive emotional side, not just pure intellect.
2: Does the anterior cingulate cortex look further back in the brain than the vmPFC?
1: It's posterior, so behind and inferior below to the prefrontal cortex
2: that's only super relevant because it means that i'm going to believe myself before i believe you
0: yeah interesting and is that is that that. uniform is that always uniform that's that's the human brain yeah yeah well what can can trauma ever impact that so for instance if you i I grew up in a lot of um i don't know uh, abuse or a dynamic where you felt like your uh perception of the world was constantly not being validated or being sort of shut down could that yeah. manifest in, in a way of not knowing what you believe you know about about the world and being kind of impressionable or yielding to to those around you more easily
1: one thousand percent yes mm. so you i mean your your cognitive brain is being trained by your experiences it's or because yeah. it's being conditioned So if during your early childhood or teenage years, it was conditioned to question your own reality, that area of your ventromedial prefrontal cortex that is responsible for you in context of environment that could become underdeveloped. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're impressionable. If someone asks a a, an introspective question, you're probably going to freeze rather than being able to produce an answer. Mm. So you're going to, I really, you're going to freeze or you're going to fawn in most cases. Yeah. And then occasionally you may flip straight into fight or flight, depending on the previous experiences and environment. Right. Yeah. How much you're pushed.
0: Yeah. But yeah. Interesting.
1: So if the environment changes the development of the brain area and the brain area contributes to our sense of self and our self-perception, you become an adult Hmm. and you're faced with what does it mean to create change? And you may be initially you may very be very unequipped to engage in meaningful behavior change
0: mm.
1: and it, yeah. it, you you're wanting something different, but your brain doesn't know how to make it happen
0: mm.
1: yeah, so a, a thousand percent, yes, it has a huge effect
2: and you have to keep in mind that you're talking about a closed system, yeah. so they're interacting and validating itself,
1: yeah, and so. Right.
2: There's that saying, the animal you feed grows, the parts of your brain that receive the feeding and the information will grow and the others will shrink. And the parts that shrink that are being fed less, um, the other parts will become more almost like a bully from a survival predictive capacity. The parts that are more well-trained need to continue to stay that way. So they will continue to bully the smaller parts because it's safer. Again, we're back to the, what, you know, the chrysalis and the big change. Hmm. And so feeding the smaller parts to make them grow has to be an intentional, uh, it has to be done intentionally. And like this gets into a lot of the work that we do, the ability to assess what parts of the brain specifically are acting in balance from left to right, and from front to back. What parts are responsible that are acting appropriately and what parts are not responsible that are acting possibly inappropriately. Mm. Having ways to assess that, and then providing the brain and the human with more information so that it can begin to act differently. Mm. So, you know, one example, we talked about a child that's receiving all this input and then they become an adult and they're offered an opportunity to change that's not comfortable that's yeah. not comfortable to have something put on me if i've ever if i've always been told i'm not capable i'm not able or worthy of making that decision i have to ask someone else what i'm supposed to do with this yeah. and so giving them repetition both physical and psychological to be able to go oh but you are hmm. your brain actually does have this capacity and and sharing with them examples that can help them make those decisions. And so as you're talking about in the work that you do, can we utilize technology to help the brain get more yeah. information faster so that it'll go, oh, I am capable. Yes. Right? And That's grow it. those smaller areas more quickly.
0: Exactly. Like our hope in this is, is not to do like you know something new it's to literally just close the gap of time between um how long it's taking to bring the actual into the possible through more streamlined like direct form of communication with with your human system sorry edica had a question Oh, yeah. and I'm just dying to know
3: you mentioned earlier that um, it wasn't until about 12 months ago, if I recall correctly, that you started introducing the conversation around belief systems into your work. Um, I'm curious to know uh, what's happened since that time. How, how have people responded since you've been introducing this and how have you introduced it?
2: Um, I suppose the is an interesting question. In the from the twelve months perspective, because from the twelve months, it's only the application of this particular avenue. Um, it's been super well respected, which is is crazy because you never know, right? But the need for it to be brought into this realm in the development of working with neurology over the last twenty years, every avenue that it has that we have stepped into only happened because someone approached us or we had an idea that this might be possible. Wait, if this is true about the brain and and humanity, isn't it also true over here? If this is true, isn't this possible, right? And so moving from originally what was, okay, if the brain is is capable of change at any age, if it's capable of growing and learning at any age, then wouldn't that make that true that you know at 50, 60, 70, 80, I can still get stronger? Or and and so they started doing research 20 years ago that 80-year-olds can gain strength at the same rate as 20-year-olds. Wow. And so mm-hmm. then neurology begins to move into that field. Wow. Right. So uh-huh. our our education and our knowledge creates a curiosity of yeah. does it apply here as well? A possibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I would say applying it has increased the rate and the effectiveness of change. Yeah. Because it's all about getting that those 40 little bits that are in our conscious brain connected to the subconscious and mm-hmm. actually getting them on the same page. When they're communicating more efficiently together and they're headed in the same direction, change becomes possible. Yes. So if fighting against each other, yes. you're stuck. Right. Cool.
0: Like, can everyone just take a second, all of you listeners, to really really deeply understand that whatever you can possibly imagine can become real through adjusting your nervous system to a position of safety and aligning your subconscious mind's beliefs to that version of reality. Like, the only thing you are limited by when you become masterful at doing those two things the only thing you'll ever be limited by is your imagination. Is that just not the most amazing thing to understand? Now, we only have like a few minutes and there's a couple of questions that I'm just burning to ask inside this episode. Okay. I would love you guys to break down the science behind synchronicities and also the science behind prayer. What Why is it that prayer really does come true on a uh, from your frame? And why is it that as we learn to let go or sort of believe in the impossible, we do start to experience these more kind of magical, synchronistic moments in, in our life?
1: I would, I would propose that prayer is one of the oldest ways to synchronize our subconscious and our conscious minds,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And, and, and I, I believe in God. I believe in divinity, I'm not even kind of going into spiritual conversation. I think there's a spiritual side, 100%. But I think from the human neuropsychological perspective, when we're praying for something, we're essentially doing imagination, manifestation, and we're going to live into the actions that will make it possible. Yeah. So on on the human side, prayer is one of the oldest ways to align conscious and subconscious, like we're talking about.
0: Mm. You know, one thing, Matt, I, I don't want to get too deep as we're trying to wrap the podcast up, but one thing that I've deeply concentrated. <laughs> you asked a light question. I know, I know. This is just like the cliffhanger for part two, which is obviously inevitable inside this conversation. But this we're hoping to have, by the way. <laughs> I mean, in, in my journey, and I think, you know, many Love Out Loud listeners probably have their own sort of version of this, I've been on this deep, deep, deep sort of quest for the truth, you know. The capital T, this, this spiritual quest through, through my journey. And interestingly, the closer I feel I've gotten to whatever that is for me, the more I've realized that there was actually this like innate part of me that believed already in divinity. It wasn't something that I had to manufacture. It was actually something that I uncovered that I, that I literally, as the more I unfolded, the more I surrendered, the more I realized it was, it was always. There, which actually sort of took me full circle from this idea that I had to construct, you know, these, these beliefs and actually just unfolded into the infinite nature that I already, already am. Just like to hear your comments on that.
1: Yeah. I think that's really moving into that higher state of consciousness. Like Mm -hmm. I think, and, and don't ever ask me to quote research on this, because it's (laughs) probably not there. (laughs) (laughs) But I think reaching that higher state of consciousness is finding that connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. I I think because we move beyond what the human brain is currently capable of understanding through logic and science, right? We move beyond something that I can see in a microscope or test in a lab Mm -hmm. into that quantum higher consciousness state that we really go, Hmm, how does this work? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think really that's the realm of the spiritual. So to find that and explore it into you said unfold, but I think to actually I would use the word expand into it Mm. is becoming more of a spiritual being. Mm. Have a thought. Not
2: in too many. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> just just a teaser a teaser <laughs> <candy>. <laughs> no, um, I
2: to be honest I actually agree with Matt that it's when we're I felt like you said it very eloquently but we're connecting beyond what we're capable of at a conscious level
0: hmm. and
2: I agree with you a hundred percent I actually believe it is already there Mm. the the recognition and this mm. is something that in my journey and search that i had to recognize
0: because
2: mm. the deeper i got into science and the more i studied the more i was like but i can't create anything like me i can't come up with anything like me yeah. i'm you know and so the recognition of going if if i can't like humans can do amazing, yeah. beautiful, powerful, gorgeous things beyond anything we really contemplate in a day, mm. but yet I can't do anything greater than life. Yeah. Yeah. And so the ability to recognise that begs the question.
0: We, we are so, like, I think, consumed by admiring the creation that we never stop to to ask who is the creator, what is the creator? It's like, it's like when people now say to me, you know, I had this, I, I felt called. My favorite question to ask is like, well, who is calling you? <laughs> you know, like we're so we're so <laughs> preoccupied with like, okay, I feel cool, you know, the conscious mind, the going, minds, like, you know, it's all me. I I'm the one that's being called. Cool. But it's like, okay, well, there's another for you to have that experience, you know, there's something calling you. And I think that that, that really is like the the union. And when I think about like the states that we need to have sort of enter or that we subsequently enter when we find that connection to divinity it's reverence it's humility it's Uh like it's 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 a bowing down to it's a surrendering it's a softening you know it's
2: yeah yeah. i studied that i studied it a lot in depth when i was quite young and there's a lot of words out there that actually uh do add to the validity of what you're saying Mm and yeah but I think to use your words that that surrender of the allowance of something greater than me and Mm -hmm. prayer being the opportunity to connect those worlds greater than me but I love that you said prayer is that opportunity to live into what is beyond my own capacity
0: yes and like a, a a beautiful sort of I think reminder for people that are Maybe utilizing prayer. A massive shift in in prayer for me was moving my state from, um, you know, I wish I wish this would happen to thank you so much for bringing forth the health that I am living into. You know, moving my state as I pray to yeah. a present moment gratitude for that which I am willing you know, to, to bring into my experience and being open and reverent has, you know, exponentially increased and improved how I connect in, in that space.
1: Yeah. I think that connection, that gratitude, it's like energy attracts energy, right? Mm -hmm. It's when we're, some people call it manifestation. You can think of those moments of synchronicity when the universe shows up or when divinity shows up in reality and you're like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think it's when we have aligned subconscious, conscious, our nervous system is in order. And we've been taking those actions to create. Mm. And I wanted to say this earlier, but we don't go into that chrysalis to discover who we are. We go into that to create who we are, right? Or to To expand into who we are. Mm. So I think that you asked about synchronicity and how that's connected. I think it's when divinity shows up and we meet a higher level of consciousness or a higher level of reality that was beyond our control.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So, yeah.
0: So good. Okay, episode two is free will versus God's will. That's, 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 a, awesome. that's a deep, 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 deep conversation. Uh, closing, closing thoughts before we hand it over to Kathy and Matt for closing thoughts.
3: Oh man. Well, I've just been taking (laughs) this whole time. Um, Matt, I think that you really nailed it with what you just said about going into the chrysalis to create who we are. Um, That's actually happening every single moment. Every breath we take is a new chrysalis. Every second we are, we have the capacity to create what we choose to see, to not make it subconscious and to start to wake up and navigate what might be out there that we have been on autopilot looking at and echoing and, and actually creating a new reality. And it literally does create a new reality. And um, the beautiful thing about humanity is that from whatever source it comes from, we have infinite capacity to imagine. And, and what I've seen in humans is that we tend to veer towards imagining beauty and imagining peace. And it's only when we're in fear that we imagine anything but out of survival. So and we can help shift people into a state of safety, I'm so excited to see what starts to emerge in this world. You know, what everyday things like cars and buildings start to look like and and, and be experienced as when they don't have to look any one certain way. And what really comes out of people's imagination um, from that pure chrysalis of every waking moment being an opportunity for creating something mm. new.
0: Mm. So beautiful. Not Kathy closing thoughts. Just a second. Go ahead.
2: Um, I think jumping back to where we were a minute ago, when you begin to consider that the infinite is possible or that the impossible is possible, um, my takeaway thought is always ask, make it real, make it personal. And so anyone that's hearing this needs to give themselves permission, or I would suggest you give yourself permission to say, what do I want? on Mm. the small and on the big that I don't currently possess, that I'm not, that I don't currently believe I'm capable of, or they don't currently. And it doesn't matter if it's a small thing, like getting rid of a pain or a big thing, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Begin to think on it because Mm. where we're going from here is the possibility of having someone enter your world that will actually go, Oh, Here's a way to learn that, or here's a way to do that, or here's a first drill to take that first step mm. to enter the chrysalis to make the change. Mm. So I would tell you to think for yourself what it is you want to achieve that you're not there yet. Mm. be open one,
3: one little simple um thing that you can play with for any listeners out there is literally reprogramming your own mind you know like taking what you said kathy there um there's a card i went through huge transitions in this last year and there's cards that i've looked at every single day and it was just to remind myself of the truth of this conversation and the one of the most powerful ones is yes i can yes i can
1: yeah
3: and like i see that every single day and there's so many days where i wake up and i would have forgotten it since the morning before And I I needed that and it's built a new way of operating for me and it's incredible what starts to happen. So, you know, think about what is, what is that thing that you, you don't believe you're capable of that you could be capable of write it down every single day, look at it, choose Mm -hmm. to reprogram your own mind and just watch what happens.
1: Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, I'm going to throw a wrinkle here and give a piece of practical advice as, (laughs) as you walk forward (laughs) and think about these things. If you find yourself struggling um, or kind of stuck in a loop, remember that the survival brain, in order to like calm the survival brain or get it into a safe place, it doesn't speak, uh, it doesn't communicate through spoken language. It's non-rational and non-cognitive. So just like you would calm a child who's crying, right? You would pick them up, hold them, make soothing sounds, like rub their back, move them in space, maybe take them out in in nature and get some in a calm environment. Our nervous systems need those things too. Mm. So if you're having trouble aligning subconscious and conscious, remember that your subconscious brain doesn't speak English or German (laughs) or French or any other Mm. spoken language. It speaks the language of soothing sensory inputs. Mm. And that's a thing that you can utilize to realign.
0: Mm, That's so powerful. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Um my closing comment would be to add to to Kathy's um amazing piece of advice about being open. One of the things I've noticed so much with 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 people is they're afraid to sort of claim what they want or even be honest with themselves about what they want. Maybe because yeah. they don't feel worthy of it or they feel scared of failure or whatever. One of the most powerful reframes that I've integrated into my own understanding of this is Even if you are not in a place where you currently feel worthy of that thing that you really want, just just know that by claiming it, life's going to start to actively invite you into a demonstration of that thing. So even if you don't currently feel worthy, by saying yes to the journey, you're going to earn, you know, you're going to earn through the demonstration of that journey, that sense of yes, I can. So even if you're not there now, allow yourself to be open to that possibility and by that person coming into your life and having the courage to, you know, have a conversation with them and and do the thing that you haven't done before, every step that you take, you're actually, you're earning that confidence, that integration, Um, and that it's not all, it doesn't all have to be now, you know. Um both of you, thank you so much. This has been such a compelling conversation. One of, I hope, you know, a 10-part series. Um, <laughs> we're going to add all of, in the show notes, you know, the, the best ways for, for these guys to, to follow you and stay connected, but maybe just to hear it directly from you, what is the sort of number one space or place that these guys can stay connected to your work? And, and reach out and say what an amazing episode this was, which I encourage you all to do. <laughs> Perfect.
1: Thank you so much. We can find us on Instagram at Next Level Neuro. We're also on Facebook, just facebook.com slash Next Level Neuro. And then that's our website too. So come find us.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, you guys. Awesome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.